salt is good. But if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? Maintain salt amongst yourselves and keep peace with each other. These are the concluding words of Mark 9, which Pastor Jad led us through last week. We pick up this week with chapter 10, where we see various individuals and groups like the Pharisees and his own disciples failing to heed this advice from Jesus. This advice to persevere, uh, preserving and maintaining peace in community. I'm Pastor Jeremy, and I want to welcome you to your week with St. Luke's, uh, our weekly podcast that sits right in the middle of our weekly rhythm of discipleship. This rhythm, which we conclude on Sunday mornings with the preach word and begin on Sunday nights with Bible study, is designed to draw us into deeper spirituality and help us walk more fully into our call to be disciples. Uh, we are entering the second week of the Lenten season, which you know is one of preparation for the resurrection we experience and celebrate at Easter. Uh, it's also a time of lament and deep self-reflection that can really stretch our understanding of what it means for each of us to take up our cross and follow Jesus as faithful disciples if we let it. Uh, as I was saying before, today we continue our Dying to Live sermon uh, series in the book of Mark, where uh, we're going to talk about how we see both the Pharisees and the disciples fail to heal Jesus' advice to maintain peace and community in chapter 10 due to pride and inflated self-importance as we explore how Jesus crosses followers both then and now to die to ego. We find at the beginning of this chapter Jesus leaving Capernaum and entering Judea. Not long after he arrives, people gather around him. And he begins to teach them. Uh, we don't even get two verses in before the Pharisees come in asking Jesus a question purely to test him. You can read along with me if you have your Bibles handy. Starting at verse two, the confrontation unfolds this way. Some Pharisees came and trying to test him, they asked, uh, does the law allow a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a, a divorce certificate and to divorce his wife. Jesus said to them, he wrote this command to you because of your unyielding hearts. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Because of this, uh, a man should leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife. And the two shall be one flesh. So they no longer are two, but one flesh. <clears throat> Therefore, humans must not pull apart what God has put together. Inside the house, the disciples asked him again about this. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a wife divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So we have this scene where Jesus is surrounded by people and he begins to teach them. The Pharisees see this as a perfect opportunity to test him in front of a crowd and maybe damage his credibility as a rabbi. They do this by inquiring about something that is just as much of a hot button topic now as it was then. They ask Jesus about divorce. Specifically, they ask what the law says about divorce and if it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Uh, though when we read this text today, it may seem pretty unnuanced and plain, when we but when we understand the historical context, we see that this was shorthand for another question. See, there were two prominent schools of thought around divorce at this time, one associated with the house of Shammai and the other associated with the house of Hillel. Jewish scholars who belonged to these two philosophical schools frequently found themselves in intense and bitter debates. Uh, what the Pharisees were actually asking Jesus was which of these two philosophy he prescribed to. 
This likely added to the stakes here as Jesus prepared to answer this question. This was not only a test of Jesus's knowledge of the law, but also a bit of a trap since it was unlikely that Jesus uh, would be able to answer this question without upsetting one of the two groups or maybe even both. Uh, the house of Shammai's understanding of the Mosaic law was that it was uh, uh, was that divorce was allowed only in the case of adultery. The house of Hillel, however, understood the law to allow divorce for anything a husband considered disgraceful or dishonorable. In this case, uh, there weren't really specific details for what defined disgraceful or dishonorable actions or states of being, which meant a case could be made for many things within a wide range of seriousness, from adultery to uh, the husband's displeasure with the wife's demeanor or appearance. The way uh, that this understanding of the law could be exploited to the detriment of women becomes clear when we read Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, which reads, uh, Let's say a man marries a woman, but she isn't pleasing to him because uh, he's discovered something inappropriate about her. So he writes up divorce papers, hands them to her, and sends her out of his house. She leaves his house and ends up marrying someone else. But this new husband also dislikes her writes up divorce papers, hands them to her, and sends her out of his house. Or suppose the second husband dies. Uh, and the text goes on and on about the fate of this woman at the hands of men. Here, uh, divorce is allowed on the basis of a human of a husband discovering something he considers inappropriate about his wife. Scholar C.S. Mann assures us that this text does not refer to infidelity, as the likes of which would have been punishable by execution, not a certificate of divorce. Uh, in verse 3, we see divorce justified merely because the second husband uh, dislikes this woman. With all of this in mind, Jesus answers first by turning the question back on the Pharisees, asking what their understanding of the Mosaic law was. They respond by saying, Moses allowed a man to write a divorce certificate and divorce his wife. Jesus responds by explaining to them that Moses didn't make this allowance because uh, divorce is preferable or something that should be sought after casually, but as an accommodation because the hearts of men were so hardened. Men were sending their wives away for any and every reason, leaving them without any way to fend for or protect themselves, since society was set up in such a way that the only way for women to come by security or resources was through men. At least, if a woman was presented with a certificate of divorce, she would be able to prove that she had been married before, which would increase the chances that she would be able to be remarried. Here's where we find Jesus' call to die to ego. It's human ego that causes men to marry these women and choose to discard them for little to no reason. Uh, it's systems based around human ego that create conditions under which women's lives are in the hands of men to decide what happens to them. Uh, moving beyond the law of Moses, Jesus goes on to make a divine appeal for not only the purpose of marriage, uh, but for why human beings were created in the first place, referring to Genesis, saying, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Because of this, a man should leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife, and the two will be one flesh. So they uh, no longer are two, but one flesh. Therefore, humans must not pull apart what God has put together. Many use Jesus' words here to argue for heterocentric definitions of marriage, but this, of course, is not the intention of the passage. Rather, Jesus, speaking from within his historical setting, argues that beyond what we see Moses say, from the beginning, God created human beings to be together, to be in community and in covenant relationship with one another, and that our understanding of marriage and subsequently divorce should flow from that understanding as opposed to loopholes and accommodations made because of human error and heart hardness. 
if we define ego as a sense of better thanness, we might pull from this that men ought not to think of themselves as better than women. Women. Uh, this idea is further supported by a peculiar verse. Uh, is verse twelve down there uh, where Jesus speaks about a woman divorcing her husband? which wasn't a thing that was legal at the time. I'm sure the mere mention of women somehow divorcing their husbands caused listeners to scratch their heads uh, uh, a little bit or at least uh, become a little angry. However, we don't see how uh, people responded to this idea. I sure wish we did, though. Uh, we find our next scene in verses 13 through 16, which reads, uh, people were bringing children to Jesus so that he would bless them. But the disciples scolded them. When Jesus saw this, he grew angry and said to them, allow the children to come to me. Don't forbid them because God's kingdom belongs to people like these children. I assure you that whoever doesn't welcome God's kingdom like a child will never enter it. Uh, then he hugged the children and blessed them. Here we see a familiar little passage. We don't get any real explanation as to why the disciples desire to keep the children away from Jesus. It's possible that they see themselves as protecting their teacher and leader uh, who spends most of his time speaking to throngs of people from what they perceive as only an annoyance. Uh, when they were alone with him after the last scene, they asked him to explain again what he had said to the Pharisees. So how could these children understand what their great master had to say? How could uh, they have any kind of meaningful interaction with Jesus or be anything other than a nuisance? But if you've been paying attention in church or reading your Bible or maybe a little James Cone, you know that God is on the side of the oppressed. And I would make the argument that children have been the most overwhelmingly oppressed people group on the planet in this or any age. Considering this, uh, listen to this passage from Bell Hooks, uh, All About Love. She says, until we live in a culture that not only respects, but also upholds basic civil rights for children, most children will not know love. Uh, she's making a delineation between love and care here uh, because her definition of love includes respect and justice. Care doesn't necessarily, but either way, these are things that often children are not afforded. Uh, she goes on to say, in our culture, the private family dwelling is the one institutionalized fear of power that can easily become autocratic and fascist. As absolute rulers, parents can usually decide without any intervention what is best for their children. If children's rights are taken away in any domestic household, they have no legal recourse. Unlike women who can organize to protest sexual domination, demanding both equal rights and justice, children can only rely on well-meaning adults to assist them if they are being exploited and oppressed at home. Thinking of the disciples gatekeeping Jesus as an unintentional form of spiritual oppression, literally putting a barrier up between human beings and the savior of their souls, uh, on top of the oppression children already face, adds an interesting layer of complexity to this passage. Jesus responds to this with the kind of anger that only your disciples completely missing the point can inspire and told them not to keep the children from coming to him. In fact, he flips the assumption from earlier that Jesus wouldn't want to be bothered by these children on its head when he tells them that becoming like these children is somehow the key to receiving the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine how deeply confused the disciples were when they heard this? Uh, but we know that Jesus promised to use the things considered foolish to confound those considered wise. Uh, this idea finds a perfect application as the children eagerly bought to Jesus uh, carry with them some special quality that the disciples who sit at his feet daily must learn to emulate. 
verses 13 and 15 work in concert with uh, one another to help us understand uh, what this quality was. Notice verse 13, notice in verse 13 uh, that these children were brought to Jesus. Since the word used for children uh, in this passage, uh, paideon, implies a wide range of ages from infancy to early adolescence, you can imagine them being carried or guided by the hand to Jesus. In verse 15, <clears throat> Jesus tells the disciples that anyone who didn't welcome or receive the kingdom of God like one of those children would not inherit uh, would not inherit the kingdom of God. This brings to mind how sometimes with great eagerness and wonder, children accept any tidbit of information offered by their parents. The emphasis here is not on blind faith or ignorance, rather deep trust, acceptance and dependency. The disciples were uh, here are being told that unless they assume a childlike posture in their dependency uh, on the reception of the grace of God, like children do for all of their needs, they would not enter, enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not something you can work your way into or be good enough to inherit. It is something you can only enter like a child with open hands. The disciples are called to die to ego here uh, and reminded they should not think of themselves as higher or better than children or those uh, or those who get to decide who have access to God. <clears throat> The disciples seem to miss the point <laughs> as a few verses later uh, in verses uh, 35 through 46, John and James come to Jesus asking if they could have special uh, special positions of honor when Jesus enters the fullness of his glory uh, for one to sit at Jesus's right side and the other to his left. Jesus tells them that they don't know what they're asking for. Jesus once again crushes the human impulse to ego and better than this, explaining that though the world's way is for power, uh, the powerful to order around and exploit others, the way of the kingdom is for uh, the powerful to become perpetual servants to the powerless, even unto death. Jesus then raises the stakes by speaking about his own imminent death and modeling what dying to ego really looks like in verses uh, 32 to 34, uh, which read, Jesus and his disciples were on the road going up to Jerusalem and uh, with, uh, with Jesus in the lead. The disciples were amazed while the others following were behind, behind were afraid. Talking to the 12 aside again, he told them uh, what was about to happen to him. Look, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem. The human one will be handed over to the chief priests and the legal experts. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. Uh, they will ridicule him, spit on him, torture him and kill him. After three days, he will rise up here for the third time in the Gospel of Mark. We see Jesus predict his death as the disciples listen on in amazement and fear. Uh, unlike the men who needed to be reminded that they are not better than women or the adults that need to be reminded that they are not better than children, Jesus, God in flesh, humbles himself in acceptance of his approaching death where he will be ridiculed, tortured, and killed by human beings who are utterly in need of a savior. This is what it truly means to die to one's ego. Maybe as we ponder these passages from Mark 10 throughout the rest of our week, we should take a step back and wonder, where have we fallen prey to better thanness? Has it caused us to harm and dehumanize others who bear the unmistakable image of God present in humanity? And ultimately, what does it look like for us to die to egos as individuals and as a community of faith?